0: Good evening. Welcome to our Bible study as we are in the Gospels, going through the life of Christ, continuing our series. And as stated before, we're going to be going through all four Gospels at one time rather than just one at a time. We left off last time we were together with Jesus Christ healing the leper. So tonight we're going to be getting into uh, another miracle, healing the paralytic or, or the paralyzed man. Now this is Probably one of the most well-known healing miracles of Christ. Of course, there's many famous miracles of Christ, walking on water, feeding the 5,000. But when it comes to healing someone, when you start talking about the four friends and the friends who bring their paralyzed friend to Christ and lower him through the thatched roof, that's often a story of if if anyone went to church at any time in their life, especially as a young child, in Sunday school, they, they very likely heard this story. And, and I do want to go over it. it is in the Bible. We want to cover it. But I do want to hopefully bring some things out that were not noticed, maybe when you were young. So let's begin by looking at Mark chapter 2. We will not be looking at all three gospel accounts of this particular story. Mark chapter 2. And uh, we're going to begin in verse number 1. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days. And it was noised that he was in the house. Now, if you remember, when Jesus Christ was healing the leper, the leper was told, Do not tell others what I have done. And then what does the leper do? In fact, Mark chapter 1, verse 45, he goes out and publishes the exact opposite of what Christ said. And because of that, Christ was not able to go into the city because people didn't necessarily just want to hear him. They also wanted to be healed by him. And now as we go into Mark chapter 2, verse 1, we see more of the same. Jesus Christ going into a house, and straightway, right away, uh, there were gathered, uh, not just some, but many were gathered insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And although I, I believe they were there to be healed by Christ, many of them, because he does do healing while he's here, I believe Christ takes advantage of the opportunity of these crowds, regardless of their reasoning for being there, He takes advantage of that and begins to teach, preach to them the Word of God to expound upon, I would imagine, the Old Testament and the truth of the Old Testament and how it connects to uh, the Messiah, which he claims to be, and and as we see in other portions of Scripture where he preaches, it's not just, here's how you can live a better life and find success, which would be, I think, uh, found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, but much of Christ's teaching is, of course, eternal And how can they find eternal life? How can they be guaranteed a place in heaven? And so, I'm sure there's both of those being taught here in verse 2 and 3. And then in verse 3, they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. So, this man has four friends, and they carry him to Christ. When they get, verse 4, to Christ... There is so much uh, uh, going on, so many people crowded in one location. They cannot bring him through the door. So what do they do? They go to the top and uncover the roof where he was. And when he, they lay it, broken it up, they lay him down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. So they lower this guy down through the roof. Now, if you know much about Jewish structures, the roof was almost another room. That's where there would be uh, maybe a table to have supper in the cool of the night. Uh, As we know with the story of David and Bathsheba, some would even have put their There are bathtubs on the top, a large tub to to bathe in. I would imagine there would be some curtains to protect you from others at the same level. Of course, David being on the palace would have been able to see what uh, over any curtains that might have been placed there. And so this rooftop, another level, a flat level, not the peaked level like we're used to here in Connecticut. And they would have broken up that level to lower the man down, destroying property. Interesting thought, Right. Christ doesn't actually call them out for destroying property. I wonder what the owner of the house thought as he sees his roof crumbling down. We're not told what happens after this. Uh, Maybe we can assume that these same men who destroyed the property fixed it later, or maybe the man who was sick of palsy paid someone else to fix it. We're not told. I can imagine if it was my house, I don't think I would be overly thrilled with someone destroying my property. But uh, seeing the end result... Maybe the property owner's disdain overseeing the destruction is eliminated by the joy of the entire crowd, at least those who loved Christ, at seeing the end result of this man being able to walk again. Obviously, not all were thrilled, as uh, we're going to find shortly. They they lower him down, and Jesus does not heal the man, at least initially. This is kind of perplexing. Jesus says to the man in verse 5, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. The man didn't ask for his sins to be forgiven. The friends didn't ask for his sins to be forgiven. I think it's pretty obvious what the man and his friends wanted. They wanted healing. (laughs) That's why they lowered him down. That's why they didn't jump through the roof themselves. Jesus does not heal him Jesus saves him. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus saves the man without the request for salvation? Is this a forced salvation? Is this some kind of predestined salvation? Is this in any form alluding to Calvinism where the man did not choose Christ? Christ chose the man. Does this bother you in any way? You know, when we teach this to young children, I think we skip over this almost altogether, (laughs) because I think a lot of Christians don't really know how to, first of all, handle this passage. Second of all, it's probably too deep of theology for a child to understand, they might think, especially if they can't understand it themselves. But this is not an overly deep truth that I'm about to lay on to you tonight. Here's what I believe is going on. And I think it's the only thing that can be going on. Otherwise, you're getting into theology that contradicts other portions of Scripture. And so whenever there's a piece of Scripture that doesn't seem to make sense, such as this, the man's being lowered down, didn't ask to be saved, Christ says, I forgive your sins. There is a key piece of information that I left out. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith... All right, so that's that key information, that there's some faith attached to the salvation. So Christ is not saving the man against his will, you might say. He's saving the man in response to faith. But the key piece of information I laid out kind of causes more confusion because whose faith is it? It's often taught by study school teachers is the faith of the friends. If these friends had such faith in Christ that they brought the man to Christ... And the man, you know, we skip over the whole salvation thing often. The man received healing because the friends were trustworthy and committed and and had faith in what Christ could do. And it was the faith of the friends that led to the man's salvation, or at least led to the man's healing. Again, most skipping over the salvation. Except I don't see how verse 5 eliminates the faith of the man who is sick it just includes the friends. Here's what I believe. I believe both the man and his friends had faith in Christ. I don't believe this man on the bed was saying, hey, it's not going to happen. You're going to get me there. You know, Christ isn't going to heal me. He's not the Messiah. He's not God. We're just wasting our time. I don't think the man was complaining on the trip to Christ. I think the man was saying, ah, oh, here, this is it. This is going to be the day. Christ is God. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've been looking for. This man knew full well who he was about to meet. I don't think the friend said, ah, you know, man's sick of the policy. We're just wasting our time. What a, what, you know, I could be doing something else other than dragging your lazy body over to uh, Christ, and I could be doing something else rather than destroying property, you know. No, I think all of them, all five of them were on the same page. They knew full well who they were about to meet, Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the prophesied one. So when Christ says, your sins be forgiven thee, he is not saving a man who who doesn't want to be saved. He is stating a fact verbally, in my opinion, that has already happened. The man has faith in Christ. The man believes Christ is God. The man believed Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That is all that's needed to be saved. Faith in Christ, the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, Christ hasn't died yet, but if the man believes Christ is the Messiah, then the man believes this is the man, Christ, who will fulfill in the future everything prophecy has said about him, including saving the world from their sins. Old Testament prophecy claims that. So Christ is stating verbally for the sake of others who can't know the man's heart, you're saved. Your sins are forgiven. I, I can assume how this man might have felt because I also am saved and went through that process and, and felt the overwhelming joy knowing my destiny was sure. And I wonder for a moment the man no longer cared if he was going to walk I wonder if he thought, you know what, this is better. <laughs> my friends lowered me to be healed from my, my physical illness, but now I'm hearing confirmation, verbal confirmation from the man that I trust, from, from this God's son, from the Messiah, that I'm saved. Wow, I really don't care if I can walk anymore. I, the Bible doesn't say if this man cared or not. I, can, I think I can assume pretty safely that his heart was so overwhelmed with joy hearing those words that he probably didn't care. Now, why didn't Christ heal him? Obvious. It's obvious to everyone in the room why this man's being lowered down. <laughs> why wouldn't Christ do the obvious? Because Christ, as God, knows the future. Remember, Christ is not here just to heal. Christ is here to teach. Christ is here to illustrate. Christ is here to prove. And so he's taking an opportunity, knowing the future, knowing how this is going to play out, to teach, illustrate, and to prove what he says is true. In verse 6, the others who are there, not happy to see this man, not happy to see uh, Christ, they, uh, sitting there, we're told, reasoning in their hearts. What are they reasoning? What are they thinking? This man speaks blasphemes, verse 7. He's a blasphemer. He's not God. Who can forgive sins but God only? All right, which is, by the way, another key to unlocking verse 5, if Christ says, your sins be forgiven thee, and if the Pharisees in their skepticism, in their hypocrisy, in their unsaved state, if they know, wait a second, only God can forgive sins, then what does the sick, the man sick of palsy know? He knows the same thing. He knows only God can forgive sins. And so I know from other parts of scripture, God only forgives the sins of those who are saved. And therefore, the sick of man sick of palsy must have trusted, again, just giving you more proof for my my assumptions here, the man sick of palsy must have had faith in Christ to be the Savior for Christ to say, you are saved of your sins because the man sick of palsy knows the same thing that the scribes knew. Only God can do that. And so, these scribes have an academic knowledge. They are speaking the truth. Only God can forgive sins. They're just not making the final connection Christ is God. There's a lot of people who are religious, and they do understand academically the Bible. They understand uh, certain truths of the Bible, even some of the deeper truths of the Bible. They, they, they get those in their head. They have not made the connection to Christ and have not have placed their faith in Christ due to the foundational truths they claim to know. Religion is not a bad thing. The Bible speaks of religion. The Bible tells us that pure religion is to, to care for the needs of the helpless, the fatherless and widows. A lot of Christians speak of religion as if, as if it's an evil thing. <laughs> I mean, the truth is Christians are religious. We should be. We, we should evidence true religion, sincere religion, godly religion. But religion, when it's not attached to God, is a dangerous thing. Religion, when it's not founded in truth, is a destructive thing because religion is the outflowing illustration of what's going on in the heart. But when there's an outflowing without a heart condition, then the outflowing is just what? It's a lie. The outflowing is deception. And who's being deceived? I think both the ones who are doing the outflowing, they're deceived into thinking that the outflowing is the salvation, that if I do these things, I am saved, whereas the Christian recognizes, no, Christ is salvation. The outflowing is just an illustration of Christ in my life, whereas those who have religion and not God, they think the outflowing is the epitome of everything. And so they've deceived themselves, living in their own self-destruction. And in their hypocrisy, they deceive others. So very destructive when religion is not attached to faith in Christ. So these religious men accuse Christ of blaspheming. Now, these same, the same groups of people, scribes and Pharisees, will later accuse Christ of being a, a child of the devil, a child of Satan. And Christ is going to call them out. We'll see that later. And call them out and say, look, you know, you, you, I will forgive every sin but that one. That's the one sin I won't forgive. Claiming that I'm of the devil. And we'll talk more about that later. Now, verse number eight. Immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason ye these things in your hearts? Now, that right away, that should have scared them. <laughs> he knew their thoughts. They didn't say it out loud. They were thinking about it. I can imagine these scribes raising their eyebrows, folding their arms, frowning, shaking their heads, looking at each other. But nothing was said. Christ calls them out, they probably just thought, oh, he just perceived our looks, and he saw our raised eyebrows, and heard our loud sighs, and he's just very uh, perceptive. <laughs> you know, you can justify anything. You could justify any lie if you want to. Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. That's at least true for the Old Testament during the time of the judges when they were running from God. They did that which was right in their own eyes. And I feel like we're in the same boat. People today do the same. Do what's right in their own eyes and justify it. Literally, a miracle has been done before them. Before the, this, is not the, this is not the first miracle of Christ he's about to perform. They've seen miracles. Before their very eyes, they've seen miracles, and yet they want to justify lies. So Christ says in verse 9, and basically I'm going to paraphrase, what's easier? Is it easier for me to say, you're forgiven, or to heal someone? Obviously... He goes on, it's easier to claim that someone's forgiven rather than to actually heal them. But he says, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do both. I'm going to show you that I can do the harder thing (laughs) to prove that the easy, supposed easy thing I said is also true. And so what he does, he turns to the man, and he says, arise, take up thy bed, go thy way into thy house. And the man does so. Verse 12, immediately he arose, took up the bed, went forth before them all, insomuch they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. Now, I don't think when it says, they all were amazed and glorified God, I'm not uh, convinced the scribes and Pharisees were part of that group. I'm pretty sure the scribes and Pharisees were not happy about this series of events. First of all, it made them look very stupid He called them out publicly and proved them wrong. Now, you would think right then they would get saved. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, fair enough. If I can heal and do the harder thing, then surely I've proven that I can also forgive sins. And I think the logic connects. But for the scribes and Pharisees, they just dug their heels in even deeper, grit their teeth, Turned their backs. Did not accept Christ for who he was, as it seems many did. Many others, in verse 12, glorifying God. They refused to see what everyone else saw. And that's what religion, when not attached to God, will often do. When you have focused your life on outward flow of good works, you won't even see what a a six-year-old child can see easily. In their innocence. So, Verse number 13, And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitudes resorted unto him, and he taught them. Christ, again, taking opportunity as people come to be healed, to teach them. And it's not that he didn't still heal them. It's not that he didn't still uh, do miracles, but that's not all he did. He continued in his miracles. He continued in his healings, but he always continued in his teaching. And then we find where Christ calls Matthew. Now, there seems to be some confusion with the calling of Matthew, and I'll tell you why. Let's look at chapter uh, 2 of Mark. Let's just continue on. And uh, looking here at verse number 13, uh, he resorted to me, he taught them, verse 14, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, Levi is Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now, this is that same Matthew who writes the gospel account of Matthew. That's, that's Levi. Now, there are other gospel accounts of Matthew's calling. You find Matthew's calling in Mark chapter 2 and uh, verse 13 through 22, and then Matthew's calling in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39. Now, here's the issue. After he calls Matthew, he says, Follow me. Matthew arises and follows him. What happens next? Verse 15. It came to pass that as he sat at meat in his house. Whose house? Matthew's house. Many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. Now in all three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have Christ calling Matthew, and then Christ eating at Matthew's house afterwards. All three gospel accounts Give us that order. The calling of Matthew and the eating at his house. Here's where the discrepancy seems to come into place. We find that in Matthew chapter 9, there are some events which take place, it seems, before the calling of Matthew. But in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5, it seems that these events take place after the calling of Matthew. I'm not going to get into all the events. If you'd like to on your own, you can kind of do some research and see what's going on with uh, the events that take place before. But the gospel accounts don't seem to give the same events before the calling of Matthew, at least not all three. Now, Matthew gives more events before he's calling. Mark and Luke give the events after the calling of Matthew. But we do find, after the calling of Matthew, there is a similar event, and that is the the healing of uh, Jairus' daughter. And we're going to get into that in our final slide tonight, Jairus' daughter. But here's what I want to point out to you. Nowhere in the Gospels is it stated, even one time, that these accounts are all chronological. God never claims that. It is obvious that in the Gospels you have some events that are given out of their chronological order. Does that take away from the inspiration of Scripture? No, it does not. Now, to our American, 21st century American minds, it doesn't make sense to us. But we're talking, first of all, a a different culture, the Jewish culture, a different writing style, Hebrew and language altogether, at a different time, 2,000 years ago. So it doesn't have to make sense for us to also believe it's inspired. It doesn't have to make sense that, well, you know if God wasn't in to inspire this, then all the accounts would be given chronologically. There is something to be said for certain events to be given due to maybe the priority that the penmen thought they deserved to be mentioned. Maybe the penman was trying to give events that, that uh, led up to a certain, like you might say, climax, and not necessarily in chronological order, but here's some things Christ did, and here's some things Christ did, and then here's some things Christ did, and they're not in order, but they, they, there is a purpose behind the direction and the order that they are given. Having said that, Scripture doesn't give us that clarification either. Basically, Scripture just keeps us in the dark. The Bible does not tell us why events are given out of chronological order. The Bible does not tell us that they are given or are not given in chronological order. But when you look at all four accounts, it is obvious that at least one of the Gospels has to be written out of chronological order. So hopefully that doesn't bother you over much. What would bother me is if the events contradicted each other, not that they're out of chronological order. So, having stated that, I'm not going to go any deeper into this whole chronology of the Gospels and, and why Matthew places the calling of Matthew later in, in chronolog- chronological events than the other Gospels. We're just going to now take a look at Matthew's calling. So, you've heard it stated. Matthew is, of course, the tax collector. The Bible lets us know that. He's at the receipt of custom And so as a tax collector, you've probably heard before as well that tax collectors were men who were thieves. They would collect taxes that were owed to the government, but they would also ask for above and beyond what was owed, and they would pocket the rest. This is not new information for anyone who's been in church any amount of time. You've probably heard messages, plural, preached on this. If you went to Sunday school, that was most definitely mentioned in your Sunday school class. Matthew was a thief. And Matthew also was brought into the fold later than the other disciples. He was probably one of the last disciples who joined, if not the last. Now, we don't know what disciples had joined at this point. We know that there were certain ones. We know, of course, the, the two sets of brothers. We know, we know Philip had joined. A- and we know now Matthew is joining, but we don't know when the others, Judas Iscariot. There's no mention of when Judas Iscariot joined Christ, whether Christ went to him and said, follow me, or whether, whether Judas said, I want to follow you. That's not mentioned. We just know that later in the accounts of the Gospels, the the Twelve apostles will be mentioned by name, and half of them are not mentioned until that time. (laughs) But this is pretty late in the ministry of Christ. This is at a time where Christ has already had the first Passover. Now, there are four Passovers given in the Gospel accounts. It is the book of John, the Gospel of John, where we are given a lot of the festivals, specifically the Passovers, to help us mark time. The gospel accounts do not say, in the year this amount A.D. or B.C., because that's not how time was kept back then. The gospel accounts do not even necessarily tell us, in the year of our Lord, because again, Christ is a new phenomenon, right? The gospel accounts do not tell us, in the year of this king or that king, there are some mentions of kings and their rule, but not enough for us to see where Christ was at at every point in his ministry. And by the way, the mentions of these kings and their lives and their rule would have meant something to the Jews who knew those kings and could, could make a correlation between their calendar and the kings. We have a lot of guesswork right now, looking 2,000 years back at, at partial documents and historical documents. We can't really pin down exactly compared to our modern calendar, when these kings ruled. It has, there's kind of a general amount of time. We do know this. According to Luke, we do know Jesus Christ entered the ministry at 30. We're told that. When he comes onto the scene to be baptized by John the Baptist, the Bible says, and he being about 30 years old. So if Jesus was 30 years old, how old was John the Baptist when he baptized Jesus? Putting on our critical thinking, what do you think? Consider when, when John the ba- Baptist was born. How many months before Christ is born? Six months. (laughs) So what's the oldest John the Baptist was? 31. What's the youngest? 30. Because if Jesus enters on the scene at 30, and John the Baptist was six months older, if Jesus was 30 and a half, then John the Baptist was 31. If Jesus was less than 30 and a half, and closer than 30, then John the Baptist himself was 30 years old. What is really intriguing to me is that John the Baptist was definitely 30 when he started his ministry. He had not started preaching long before Christ arrived on the scene. So John the Baptist and Christ both began their ministries at 30. Why? I have a point I'm going, by the way. As I stated, uh, time is told in the Gospels mainly through the Passovers. There are four Passovers in Christ's life. In the Gospels that we see in his adult life, the first Passover is the one uh, around the time of the marriage of Cana, right? Right after the marriage of Cana, his first miracle being the marriage of Cana, returns the water into wine, and he says to his mom, hey mom, my time is not yet here to reveal myself for who I am. Then almost immediately after that marriage of Cana, he goes to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, his first Passover. He's still 30 years old, and that's where he reveals himself. That's where he turns over the money changers' tables, and he rebukes the thieves in the temple. And then that's where we're told in Jerusalem, he does many, many miracles. He, he just basically, public announcement of his ministry above and beyond John the Baptist, baptizing him. Now uh, publicly so in Jerusalem through miracles and uh, rebuking of thieves in the temple. 30 years old. There's a lot of speculation. We can't say exactly why Jesus chose the age of 30. There seems to be a reason, especially when it's attached to John also choosing the age of 30. So I'm going to give you some speculation, and I want to clarify speculation. I can't tell you for sure why that is the case. We do know in Numbers chapter 4, verse 3, in the Old Testament, the Bible tells us that priests who were Levites. You had to be a Levite to be a priest. There are 13 tribes of Israel, not 12. There are 13, the tribe of Levi being the 13th tribe. The tribe of Levi didn't own massive amounts of property or land. They didn't own, you know, you might call them states, right? Uh, There were 12, you might say, states of Israel. The 12 tribes each had their own state, although that's not how they would describe it. I'm kind of describing it in a way we as Americans understand. And then the tribe of Levi was just dispersed throughout the 12 states, being the 13th tribe. So you had to be from the tribe of Levi to be a priest. Not only that, you could not begin ministering in a position of authority as a priest until you were, can you guess, 30 years old. According to Numbers chapter 4, verse 3, God tells Moses... That they must be 30 years old, the Levites, before they can minister. Before they can oversee the sacrifices. Before they can uh, bridge the gap between the Jews and God as the priests. Because before Christ and before the Holy Spirit, you didn't go directly to God. You went to the priest who went to God on your behalf. That was Old Testament. Praise the Lord, that's not New Testament. Now, some people are confused, and they think that is New Testament. There are religions who go to a man and then say to the man, will you go to God for me? That's Old Testament. You don't have to do that anymore. We can just go directly to God now. In fact, when Christ died on the cross, he tore the curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, making it very clear there is now direct access to God. You don't have to go through a priest any longer. But in the Old Testament, and at this time, before Christ died, how old did you have to be to actively minister on behalf of the people as a priest? 30 years old. In Numbers chapter 8, verse 24, we're told 25. Wait a second. Why is one age 30 and one age 25 in the Old Testament? And both referring to priests and both referring to ministry. I believe Numbers chapter 8, verse 24 gives a slight clarification. And I believe Numbers 8.24 is referring to a training period. That a 25-year-old year male was allowed and encouraged, if not basically put in the position, of learning under a veteran priest of 30 years old or older. And so there's basically a five-year college period, a five-year internship, that before they became an active priest themselves... They had to learn under someone else, and that time period was five years. Now, something else interesting, once they were 50 years old, their time of ministering at least actively was done at 50 years old. What does that mean? it Was it forced retirement for ministers? Because here's how some people have stated it, that in the Old Testament, God believed that maturity arrived at 30 years old. And that uh, a man was not mature enough to do the work of ministry until he was 30. And he was not really mature enough to learn under someone else until he was 25. Now, I don't necessarily believe that's what's taking place. I don't know what is God's reasoning for 30. There obviously is a reasoning for 30, and it might have some attachment to experience Life experience and maturity It also might have some attachment to uh, the fact that even if you are mature at 20 years old, even the Apostle Paul stated to Timothy, "Let no man despise thy youth, that even if you are mature, people look at your youth and say, "Well, I'm not going to listen to you anyways," that, that your maturity isn't always seen by others, especially when you have a baby face, right? You know, Unshaven if you're a Jew and your beard is not fully grown out at 26, people may not take you seriously. And so God may have taken that into account. But here's the problem with stating that, well, in the Old Testament, someone wasn't supposed to be a priest till 30, and we should follow that. And pastors should not take a church till they're 30. You'd also have to say then pastors should retire at 50, because that's when priests were, re- were re- expected to retire. They-, they could not actively serve. Now, we are told that they would be allowed to help others, that at 50, there was kind of a semi-retirement. They, would, they could assist, they could oversee, they could, they could advise, but they had to step away from the active role of priest. And I'm sure many pastors would not be happy to hear they have to retire at 50. So that just blows that argument out of the water. I will also state this. In uh, the Old Testament, how old do you have to be to fight? It was 20 years old. I mean, so God thought someone was mature enough to fight and die for your country at 20, but not mature enough to minister till 30. Uh, Again, I'm not saying there isn't some correlation between maturity and ministering. And I would say as well that fighting in an army and taking command and dying for your country probably doesn't take as much maturity as leading God's people spiritually. So I, I will give that point out. But then we have another problem. We find that in 1 Chronicles chapter 23 verse 24 that David had changed the rules. <laughs> and now you could become a priest at 20 years old. And you say, well, was that only for a time? No, because in Ezra chapter 3 verse 8, hundreds of years later, they're still entering the priesthood at 20 years old. There's only two things I have to say about that. First of all, it was David who changed the rules, not God. Second of all, The Bible doesn't clarify when David changed the rules. Did David change the rules from active, full-fledged priestlyhood from 30 to 20? Or did he change the training period from 25 to 20? Essentially saying your internship can begin at 20. I don't know. I lean more towards the idea that I think David was allowing interns at 20, allowing more help in the priesthood at 20 years old, probably still keeping the active duty, full uh, authority of a priest at 30. Although the Bible doesn't state that, that's where I lean. But either way, it doesn't matter. David changed the rules, not God. And so we're left with Jesus Christ being about 30 years old. How do we know that? From the Passovers. We know the time of his ministry and how that took place. We know he's 30 years old from Luke when it said he's about 30 years old. So did Jesus enter the ministry at 30 because of Old Testament expectations regarding a priest? Well, was Jesus entering the role of priest? Did Jesus claim the tribe of Levi? No, Jesus claimed the tribe of what? Judah. Did Jesus have, you know, Levite heritage? Yes, but it's claimed, you know tribe of Judah. That was going to be his his heritage. He's going to be the king of kings. Did Jesus have enough Levite in him to be a Levite? No, your father had to be a Levite. Jesus, in the book of Hebrews, claims his priesthood not from the tribe of Levi. Jesus claims his priesthood from from the tribe of what? Melchizedek, the priestly tribe of Melchizedek, which is outside of the Hebrew. Now I'm getting way outside of the Gospels. But basically, uh, God claims that Jesus is is of the priestly order outside of the Hebrew's standards, cultures, and laws. So Jesus is not entering his ministry at 30 to say, I'm a priest, and therefore I'm going to follow the priestly expectation of 30. And so again, we're back to where I started. Then what is his reasoning? (laughs) Well, because he's really entering as a prophet, right? So it leads to the question of is there any time, age associated to prophets? Did prophets have to be 30 years old before they could start teaching? No. 1 Samuel 3, verse 4 blows that one out of the water. Little child Samuel becomes a prophet at an extremely young age. He's in his teens, probably 13, something like that. So there is no expectation or requirement of 30 years old to be a prophet. But we do see a timeline. The timeline is found in the Gospels through the Passovers. Jesus started his ministry at the first Passover. He was baptized before the first Passover. The wedding at Cana took place before the first Passover. His 40 days in the wilderness was before the first Passover. He even started calling people to follow him before the first Passover. But it was at the first Passover that he did miracles in Mass. And then we're going to find, after calling Matthew, the second Passover. Now, how close between the calling of Matthew and the second Passover, we do not know. But it seems to be close to the next event that takes place. It is possible that Jesus has already been ministering for up to a year before Matthew is called into the fold. Matthew is not only a thief, Matthew is not only despised, Matthew is the student who comes into school during the third quarter, (laughs) during the second semester. Boy, it must be hard to make friends, right, coming into school that late, and you're already the one that no one likes. How much faith did it take for Matthew to take that step, knowing he was the new guy? after many, many months of other disciples establishing their relationship with Christ, knowing he was the despised guy. You know, you talk about the faith of Peter and Andrew, James, and John to leave their ships. Talk about the faith of Matthew to leave his lucrative, although illegal, money-making position. You talk about the fact of Peter, Andrew, James, and John leaving their families to follow Christ. Look at Matthew joining a family that didn't want him. I'm pretty sure Christ is the only one that wanted Matthew in that crowd. The disciples probably thinking, we have enough. You know, we've been with you nine months, ten months, maybe even eleven months. We don't need this guy. I like how Matthew starts it off, though. If nothing else, Matthew's not an idiot, is he? He knows who he's joining. He's joining a group of people people that don't want him. And so what does he do? He feeds them. I love it. Takes them to his house and holds a banquet for them. I mean, if you're going to win people over, that's a great way to do it. So he invites them over to his house and right away Matthew is proactive. I don't think Matthew's an introvert. I don't think Matthew's like, okay, Christ, I'm going to join you and just going to be back in the crowd now. going to hide back here with everyone else, and I'm happy just to be in your presence. No, Matthew's like, you know what? Great. Hey, I want to get to know all of you guys. Let's go to my house. Let's have a party. I'm going to bring my friends. I want my friends to get to know you as well. That's our introduction to Matthew. I like Matthew. I like that Matthew is willing to leave his life of sin and thievery for Christ. Leave it all behind knowing that the church, if you want to, you know, illustrate in that way, knowing that the church is going to doesn't even want him. <laughs> like, these guys don't want him there. But Matthew's like, I'm not here for you guys. I'm here for Christ. I don't care if you want me here or not. I'm going to worship Christ. And I'm going to worship Christ in your presence, even though you despise me. And you know what? That kind of attitude, you can't just help but eventually love. And I think he won over the other apostles. Eventually, obviously, from the relationship we see he has with them later, he won them over. He won them over by his love for Christ but he's also a pretty smart guy. He started off on the right foot. He fed them. He opened up his house to them. He didn't put insult on top of insult. He didn't just only invite Christ and leave the rest out. Everyone's invited. In fact, it seems to me from this text that not only is everyone invited, it seems people might have shown up that weren't invited. So here we are in uh, verse number 15 There were many that followed him, verse 16, and when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners. All right, I don't think Matthew invited the scribes and Pharisees. First of all, the scribes and Pharisees would not be friends with Matthew. Matthew, when it says they saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they're talking about Matthew and Matthew's friends. Matthew would have invited his friends. That would have been a polite thing to do. You have someone as popular as Jesus come to your house, you better invite your friends as well. So the Pharisees are coming uninvited because the Pharisees are the kind of, like, we own the world. We own the town. Like, we can go to anyone's house uninvited, and you should be grateful we walked in and feed us. Like, that would be their attitude. You know people like that? They walk in your house, and they think that they're blessing you with their presence. Like, you, why would you be shocked that I'm here? You should be, you, should be exact, you know, thrilled that I'm here, ecstatic. And so the uninvited show up. This is such a big party. They said unto his disciples, how is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? And did you catch this? Who are the scribes and Pharisees talking to? Not Christ. They're talking to Christ's followers about Christ. And what are they trying to do? Cast doubt into the followers of Christ about Christ. Look, guys, if you have an issue, go to Christ. Now, Christ knows all again and jumps in, protects his followers from any moments of doubt or confusion, and he addresses the issue and and answers it. But boy, these guys are sneaky. They want to go to the followers of Christ and cast doubt. That is something that's been done since the time of Adam and Eve. Satan goes to Eve and says, has, has God said? I mean, Satan doesn't really create new deceptions. He just uses the same ones over and over again, and we're stupid enough to fall for them. Christians and churches being asked questions that they don't need to answer the question shouldn't be directed to them, but they're stupid enough to listen, and then doubt follows, and they run from God. So Jesus hears it and says unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, Matthew knew he was a sinner. You're not going to insult him by calling him one. <laughs> the word publican is often associated with sinner. Sinner. And the Pharisees saying, publicans and sinners, because, again, associated, Matthew knew, you're talking about me. Matthew's friends knew, we were talking about me. Christ is not insulting them. He's saying, you know what, I'm giving them hope. And he's basically saying, if you don't want hope, fine. These guys know they need something different, and I'm the, I'm the thing they need. I'm the one they need, and I'm here to rescue them from what they know they're dying from. Verse 18, the disciples of John... And the Pharisees used to feast, and they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast? I'm sorry, used to fast, but thy disciples fast not. Now, it is possible, the whole chronology thing that I told you about, it is possible in my head that this is where the break is. It is possible that that Matthew was called much earlier than the book of Matthew implies, but all three accounts Put the story of Christ calling Matthew, and of course, Matthew having him at their house, and then this conversation, they put them all together. It is possible, and I think if there's any break of chronology, I think it's here, that they're associating this account together because it's, it's a similar conversation. And so, the reason that the Gospels would put these two events together, even though they didn't happen at the same time, would be because. They're not going to have Christ having a conversation about something here and almost the exact same conversation over here, even though they're at different times. If we're going to give the information, we're going to give it at the same time so all the information is given in one big picture. That would be the reasoning I would think is most likely to be the case. And so whatever events happen between these two points, uh, some of the Gospels put them together. The Gospel of Matthew maybe. Um, talked about the events that were between these two events, talked about all the events beforehand, and connected Matthew to the conversation had later rather than co- connecting the later conversation to the time where Matthew's called. If you guys are completely lost and don't follow me, I'm sorry. I'm, that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, but I think that this is probably where the break is, in my opinion. All right, so not necessarily that right after the Pharisees attack Jesus, then John's disciples come and question Jesus. I think they're two separate points with some time in between. So then in a similar conversation, at another time, the apostles, the disciples of John, the Pharisees used to fast. Oh, why, don't, why don't you guys fast as well? And then Jesus says... Uh, can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, he also goes on to talking about putting wine into new bottles or they'll burst. And uh, talking about a piece of garment. You don't, put, you don't patch a new piece of garment uh, with an old piece of garment. Otherwise, it, it rends, it tears, it makes it worse. So this is all happening at that time, during that conversation. And then he says uh, in... Verse number 24, And the Pharisees said to him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? Okay, what's going on in verse 23? We see the, the disciples picking corn. So this is, again, in a separate conversation, separate thing. But attached, because, again, they're all talking about the same topic. But we know that this topic in Mark chapter 25 and on is a separate time because we're told in verse 23, and they went through the cornfields. So, again... I think the implication is we're trying to to put together, group together, similar conversations, even though these conversations didn't all necessarily take place in the same day or even the same month. Possibly not even the same year. I mean, it's a possibility. So that's the calling of Matthew. Let's move on now. i got ten minutes, and let's talk about Jesus healing at the pool of Bethesda. Bethesda. So in John chapter 5, that's where we're going to go now. John chapter 5. John doesn't talk at all about the calling of Matthew, skips that altogether. And the other Gospels don't talk about the Pool of Bethesda. This is the only Gospel that deals with this account. So in John chapter 5 and verse 1, this is the entire chapter. I'm not going to probably make it through the entire chapter tonight. So next time we pick up, we'll just continue on in John chapter 5. In verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem Now, by the way, John chapter 5, verse 1, a feast of the Jews. It is implied this feast is a major feast because Jesus is going to Jerusalem for the feast. It was the feast of the Passover that the Jews were highly encouraged to travel to Jerusalem for this feast. John chapter 5, verse 1 doesn't clarify that this is the feast of the Passover. In fact, it doesn't even say the feast. It says a feast. So some theologians believe this is a different feast. But again, I'm not going to get into in-depth, probably because you'll just be bored by the information. But if you look at other feasts and other times going on in the Gospels as Christ was traveling throughout Galilee, it doesn't seem that there could have been other major feasts that haven't already passed. I'll give you one example. When Christ is uh, dealing with the Samaritan woman, and he says, Behold, uh, you say four months to harvest— Christ right there is giving us an idea of what time of year it was because four months to harvest, if harvest was four months out, it would have been about November, December. And so major feasts that this could have been would have already passed by that time. And so the only other really major feast this could have been and and the feast that Christ would have traveled to Jerusalem for would have been the Passover. So most theologians with that information in mind believe that John chapter 5 verse 1 is the second Passover, which means... Christ is now entered is now entering into the second year of his full-time ministry. That he's already had one pass and now going into number 2. All right. Verse 2. Now there was at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. A lot of people, I think, have problems with this text because it seems very odd to them that there would be a pool you could step into and be healed. Let me ask you this. Is it odd that uh, in the Old Testament there would be prophets who could call fire down from heaven? Is it odd that the Old Testament prophets like Moses, who is a prophet, could uh, split the Red Sea? Is it odd that Old Testament even leaders like Joshua could have the Levites carry the Ark of the Covenant across the River Jordan as the River Jordan uh, went to, to the water dissipating into the ground and then coming back when they're done? Is that odd? I mean, If you believe in a God of miracles, you believe in a God of miracles. The only reason that's odd to us is because God's not still doing that today. It wasn't odd to the Jews because that had been going on every year. This was a commonplace thing. The only oddity of it was it wasn't through a prophet. Because throughout most of the Old Testament, it was the prophets who were doing the healing and the prophets who were doing the miracle. This miracle isn't attached to a prophet. That's the oddity. It's attached to an angel. And the Jews would have known that. If, if there's no prophet here to touch the water and we be healed, God must be sending an angel down. They would have come to that conclusion. And by the way, inspiration of Scripture gives us that same conclusion. But it had been happening for some time. So why would God heal people in this manner? Well, why would God heal people through prophets? Today, why would God heal people through prayer, which he often does? The method in which God uses to heal people should not concern us so much. The fact that he heals should be our focus. We serve a healing God. In the Old Testament, God used prophets, I think, to, actually I know, to clarify for the people of God who was a prophet of God. He stated, if if the prophet can can do these things, it's very likely as a prophet. The last way to know is if when they give a prophecy and it comes true and they can do these miracles, then you know they're a prophet of God. But keep in mind, Satan's followers can do amazing things as well, as we saw with Moses in Pharaoh's household, and the sorcerers of Moses copying some of the miracles of Moses. So God did specify that, hey, just because they can do amazing things is not enough. They must also be able to tell the future and it come true. But God would use the miracles of the prophets to clarify who were prophets. God would also use miracles of the prophets to remind the people of Israel that he had not forgotten them. So why wouldn't God use prophets now? Well, John the Baptist is a prophet. They hadn't had prophets actively for hundreds of years. Why not? You might call it the dark period, the dark ages of Israelite history, Jewish history. For, where for hundreds of years, there was no prophecy given. You end with the book of Malachi, and then hundreds of years later, we have Christ coming on the scene. For hundreds of years, the Jews were without, at least, strong, national, inspired prophets. And so God, in his mercy, gives them the pool of Bethesda to remind them that although I'm not inundating you with prophets of old, I have not forgotten you. And then you might say, well, then why don't we have the pool of Bethesda today? Because we have the Holy Spirit today. Because we have direct access to God today. And God does not need the pool of Bethesda to remind us that he is near us. The Holy Spirit reminds us of that daily. God does not need prophets to remind us of that. We have the word of God completed. And again, the Holy Spirit to remind us of this truth. So the pool of Bethesda, I have no doubt is an accurate account of a miraculous event that was available to the Jews on a yearly basis. And so Christ comes to this man in verse 6 and says, Wilt thou be made whole? Wait a second, we just saw tonight, not long ago, where a man came to be made whole, and Christ doesn't heal him initially, he saves him. (laughs) And now we have a man who doesn't ask to be healed, and Christ goes to him and says, do you want to be healed? I mean, Christ, what's the deal? What's your method? We don't seem to see a pattern because you deal with this person one way, and you deal with this person another way, and one blind person, you heal them just by speaking, and another blind person, you heal them by making mud with spit and putting it on his face. One uh, person you, you, you heal in, in this manner, and another one is completely different. One they have to ask. One you ask them. Where's the pattern, God? We as believers want to see a pattern. We as believers want to find the, the key that unlocks the power of God. And then if we see that pattern, we can own into it maybe. Here's the truth I'll leave you with tonight. God is a God of order, no doubt. But that does not mean that God has the same way of doing things with every person. God chooses how he's going to deal with you, spiritually, physically, and emotionally. And God is not going to, he has never promised to, deal with you the same way, he, dealt, he has dealt and will deal with me. You are doing yourself a disservice if you are trying to discover God and how God's going to work with you by watching how he works through others. Because God never promised to do the same for you. Instead of trying to figure God out by how he deals with others, why don't you figure God out by how he is currently dealing with you. You'll go a lot further in your spiritual condition. You'll be a lot happier, a lot more content when you stop comparing your life, your journey, to other Christians and recognize you have your own path. Now, look, we all take the same path of Christ to God, but on that path, it doesn't look the same. You get to God one way, faith in Christ, but once you've Accepted Christ as your Savior in faith. The journey that we take with Christ after salvation to heaven, that's not the same journey. We don't all have the same ups and downs at the same time, the same heartaches, the same blessings. Christ has something he wants to teach us, and he's going to adjust his teaching style to our needs. And that you should be grateful for. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your people. Thank you for the chance to see some deep truths tonight in the Gospels. I pray that we would continue our learning of Scripture, and as we go deeper, we could teach deeper to the children, to others you've placed in our lives. I pray that our understanding of you would grow deeper, and in turn, our faith would grow stronger. In Jesus' name, amen.